Well, we are glad to see you guys. We are in the last week. This is the final one of our Kicking Down Sandcastle series. How many of you guys have gotten something out of this? God's been speaking to you, working on your heart. He's been uh, messing me up all week with this current message we're going to be dropping in right now. And so, uh, yeah, I'm praying for you. So we're going to go ahead and dive into this today because we're talking in this series about living a life that is storm ready. How do you be ready for those huge, maybe financial, relational, uh, maybe it's just something that's happening with your body physically, these storms that hit your life, hit, your, hit you where it hurts in a sense, and you stay standing. And, and Jesus tells us the way to do that is to build our house on the rock, on his teaching, that we don't just simply hear his word, but we also do his word, right? Not just hear it, but do it. And so we've been examining his word in the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're going to begin another segment on that as we're talking about another aspect, another sand that we shouldn't be building on. Before I did that, though, I wanted to look into the idea of, you know, like how do other people, secular people, maybe atheists, really engage with the storms of life? How do they get comfort out of that? I see sometimes like, man, horrible things happen and you're just like, how do you go through this without Jesus? And the answer that typically comes up is that people need to have like counseling on a community, but also they need to have a life plan, sort of like a purpose. Anybody heard of a life plan? Like you need to set out where you want to go and what you want to do. And uh, in fact, a lot of schools are having kids do life plans nowadays, like look out to your future. Um, typically they say, look to your funeral, you know, like look at the day of your funeral, ask yourself, what do you want people to say about you? And then jump back to your present and look at who you are to who you want to be, and then kind of evaluate that. Then the next step you want to do is kind of look at your roles and figure out how those fit into this and, and make sure that you set your goals and days that you're going to hit or months or years that you want to hit those goals by. And so all this goal setting. And then I was like, then they hit this one odd thing. And to be quite honest, this is the part that was weirding me out because while all those other things are okay, suddenly when they hit relationships, they tell you this, you know, to evaluate every single one of your relationships to see whether it's going to help you or hinder you in achieving your goals. And I don't know about you, but that's very sinister if you start to think about it. In a world of selfishness, in a world that this is really defined as a selfish act, you go first, your goal, your destiny, your dream, your aim for your life needs to be laid out. And so people that are surrounding you, they're not there for community. They're not there for support. They're either an obstacle in the way of your goal or they're a rung you're going to step on to make it up to the next level. And really, that's kind of how it begins to sound. And how many of us know people who treat people in that manner? That literally, they look at you as somebody in the way of what they're trying to accomplish, or you feel like you're being used, and they're just kind of going up the next level at your work or in your life. And this is really what's going on in our cultures. we got this issue of selfishness that is everywhere. Putting ourselves before everyone else has become kind of the mantra of the self-care movement, of the self-help movement, you name it. It's got to be about you. You do you. And this mentality of selfishness, of self-first, is actually is, is kind of a normal human state. Let's be honest. Just a couple weeks ago, or actually this last week, it showed up in my house. Um, it was on a Wednesday when the kids get to go late to school. My wife got up early, and she was like, hey, I'm going to make breakfast for the kids. Well, a couple of my boys were up before her, and they were downstairs, and they were hungry. I mean, just hungry. And so my wife says, you know what? You know, you can have a snack, go, go eat a piece of fruit or something because I'm going to make you breakfast. 
that was not good enough for one of my kids. They were like, no, I want to eat what I want to eat when I want to eat it, and I want to eat it now. And they were like, I don't want to eat a piece of fruit. And suddenly they started having a meltdown and a screaming explosion, and they got in timeout and all this stuff. And I was thinking to myself, that's so cute, you know, a little selfishness going on right there, right? It's cute when our kids, maybe annoying if you're a parent, but it's cute and somewhat with our kids. But then I came home the other day, pulled up in front of my house, and there the HOA had decided to staple onto my tree a no parking sign in front of my own house because they wanted to trim my tree that I water and pay for the water for, but they claim is theirs, right? And they've butchered this tree every year. I care about this tree. I've shaped this tree. This tree has grown miraculously large under my care. And, and they told me I can't park here because I had blocked them last time <laughs> to, to keep them from actually cutting on my tree. And so now I'm not allowed to park there. I come inside and I'm just like, I can't believe it. I got the sign there. And the kids are like, yeah, dad, yeah, dad, get the HOA, get them. And my wife's like, my wife's like, look, we don't want our children to have this kind of attitude. I'm just like, ah, oh. so yeah, it's cute when my kid, it's not so cute when selfishness shows up in my heart, right? But it's everywhere. It's in all of our homes. It's in all of our lives. It is a sand that surrounds us that Jesus is telling us you can't build your life on selfishness. You can't build your life by putting yourself first. In fact, Jesus is going to show us in four different scenarios how this is so damaging and destroying to our relationships and our world. And so he's going to call us to selflessness, to living in a manner of putting other people first, in these four different scenarios. But we're going to find these in, cha in Matthew chapter 5. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 21. While you go there, we, we've already seen from Jesus that, yes, we have to build our life on his teaching by hearing and doing it. And we started with being unfair to ourselves and looking that fairness isn't exactly the route we need to build on. We, we looked at the fact that we needed to have purpose with our possessions and not uh, stress our lives out by worrying, but no, trusting God for our needs. And last week we talked about being influential. And we said that you need to be salt and light, and yet you need to be humble and pointing to God, not to yourself. And as we dove into that, Jesus actually started talking about the law. And what's interesting about the law is it's a reflection of God's intent for our lives. And God's law was called for us to live in a certain way so that we wouldn't live selfish lives. Fascinating. If you read enough um, of C.S. Lewis or other theologians, they will often link that the root of sin is actually selfishness. That if you will look deep down on sin, what you will find is our putting ourselves before God and before other people, and therefore we wind up sinning. Now, there's a debate in that, but I think it's a good start to tell us that often when we are selfish, you will find sin in vast majority of the times. And so when Jesus dives into the law, he's trying to point us to a selfless expression because there were these teachers and these leaders who were taking the law and removing God's intent and shrinking it down, making it very easy to obey the law and at the same time be extremely selfish. And so he's going to deal with four interpretations of the law here that are these four subjects. And so let's start with the first one. It begins with this. It says, You've heard that it was said that in days of, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So this is not the law. It's an interpretation of the law. And what they were saying was, if you've murdered someone in cold blood, this isn't for self-defense, this isn't for anything, but this is like you've killed somebody out of rage, anger, and just intensity, then boom, you've broken the law. But only then. 
Otherwise, don't worry about this. That's the only time you're liable to judgment. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. What you don't understand is that's the fruit. What Jesus was going to get to was the root. Notice how he continues. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Stop right there. Now, you may not, if I had asked how many of you have murdered somebody, nobody's going to raise their hand whether you did or didn't. But everybody in here is going to raise your hand when, you, when you, I would ask you, have you ever been unrighteously, unjustly, sinfully angry at someone? The answer is, well, yeah, all of us, every human being on earth. This is a human problem. And Jesus says it is this human problem that is the root to the fruit of murder. It is the beginning place on a journey of a pathway. We all struggle with anger. And I know this is a truth, whether you raise your hand or not, because you live in Corona <laughs> with traffic, right? And the other day, I know six months ago, actually, I don't know what's wrong with our county, why they can't coordinate the times to work on the freeway and the times to work on the only roads to get around the freeway at the exact same time at rush hour. That's one of those days. I'm trying to get away from my house to work for a meeting. I'm stuck in a long line at a stop sign by a mine, and they got big trucks rolling out, slowing everything down. You can't go on the freeway because they're doing construction to make it easier, right? So, okay, good. And so I finally crawl my way up through painted hills over there by Tom's Farms. And God bless you guys who live there. You don't have the mind to deal with yet. But And what's interesting is suddenly, I know better than to get mad at the construction workers. You know, they're there doing their job. They're there because they were called to. You should be mad at the county supervisor and the foreman who set this mess up at the wrong time, right? They're the idiots that did this. And I pull around the corner. I'm pulling across the bridge. And as I'm approaching that bridge, it'll just be next to Tom's Farms, on the way back to get on to Timiskel Valley, lo and behold, over there on the truck with the plans out is the county, form and the for the county supervisor and the foreman looking over the plans. I'm thinking, this is a God-ordained moment. <laughs> I will tear a piece of cloth off of Saul's robe, and I'm going to go for this one. I... Literally, I pulled my car over. I'm seething angry. I am just so frustrated. I unlock my door. I'm about to roll down my window. And God's like, you are the pastor of the sign right in front of you across the street. You, you don't. You do. And I'm like, I got the better of myself. And I drove off thinking about blowing the car up in front of me with my little fake guns on my car. Or as one person told me, you know, driving down with a snowplow, just boom, cars flying, you know, just to get where I needed to go. But notice what I just did in that whole true scenario of my life. They, did, they were no longer people who are struggling with their bosses and their timings and all the county and the state governments. They're idiots. And these aren't people in cars with the same plight I'm in. They're obstacles to snowplow out of the way. And what we do in our anger is we actually dehumanize people. We see seeing them as made in the image of God. We see seeing them as people with the same plights as us, and they become something else. They become people who are in our way. You see, anger always occurs when you have a desire or a direction to go, and something gets in your way or someone gets in your way. When they interrupt your desire, your aim to get what you want, when they don't do what you want to do, think the way you want them to think, or are acting the way you want them to act, you will get angry. That's why you get mad at inanimate objects. Isn't that silly? You're like, you bump into something, you're like, stupid bench, 
why are you mad at a bench? The bench didn't do anything to you. It doesn't even think. It's not even conscious of you. It's just there. It's because it was in your way. And what we have is this, is this anger that occurs in our lives. And Jesus says it starts with anger, but it moves from there. He goes on, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, the first word, whoever insults, is actually this word raka. It means empty head. In other words, idiots or morons. I'm in trouble with the council, right? And the point is here that what's interesting is I did a study years ago about cussing because I was a youth pastor and, and students struggle with cussing. We adults, were good at this. We don't do that anymore. And so, but, you know, I looked back and I was doing every major cuss word that I could think of at the time period. And as you research their origins, what you discover is they all come roughly from the concept of something that either needs to be flushed down a toilet, burned in a fire, thrown in the trash, or locked in a room because nobody wants to see it. In other words, it's that which is devalued to the, to the point of getting rid of it. Get it out of our town. Get it out of our village. Get it out of our lives. It's not worthy or worth having around. Every single cuss word devalues the human being. And when we use them at each other, we are literally chopping people down in their value. Whether we use them flippantly or not, we don't realize that is the intention of the terms. And, and what Jesus says here is what you're doing is you just took another step. While you were angry here, maybe devaluing, now you've stepped into literally using your words to devalue them. They're no longer worth the image of God. They're lesser. They're worth being thrown out. You keep processing that far enough. You keep seething in bitterness. You keep moving in that anger, and you're going to wind up on a road to murder because it's a root that leads to a fruit. Now, not all anger is unrighteous. Jesus was angry. He got mad at those two people who were in the temple. God has a wrath towards sin. But I, I caution you in thinking that maybe we can have some kind of appropriate anger, some righteous anger. Because to be quite honest, every time I've seen righteous anger in a person, it ends up devaluing somebody. They get angry at them and they're actually doing human anger. And as James, the brother of Jesus, would write to his church, he'd say, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We may think we're being righteous and righteously indignant. I just warn us that, hey, don't even play that game. Deal with your anger appropriately. In fact, there's been a lot of studies that have been done on anger and examinations of anger. And I'm just reading a book on, on, with anger and emotional intelligence and all this stuff. And what they've discovered about anger is interesting. The more you vent it, the more it grows. It doesn't shrink by letting it out. It doesn't shrink by raging and cussing. You may feel better, but actually it just increases the, in, the growth of the anger. It makes it stronger. It makes it faster. I knew a guy, uh, or actually I didn't know a guy, but um, Jared knew a guy who once, he would get angry, and the way he would handle his anger, he'd go out and start punching a punching bag in his garage. And you're like, hey, that sounds like a decent way to deal with your anger. It was until he wasn't around a punching bag. And he would get angry, and he'd punch a wall. And he punched out his very window in his own car. And he broke his hand because when he got angry, he needed to punch something. It grows your anger. It vents into destructive tendencies. And if it can go from an insult, it can go to a blow. If it can go to a blow, it can go to murder. So it's not venting that's going to help you out. So what do we do? 
How do we deal with our anger? It's no wonder Jesus didn't tell you to vent it. Jesus says to put others first with mercy. Notice how Jesus continues on. Because it seems awkward to go from anger to what he's going to tell us. But what he's aiming us at is mercy, to not judge and destroy. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Now, you want to circle this word. First, be reconciled to your brother then come offer your gift. First, if you find yourself standing in a worship service, having left the car, just with an argument with your spouse in the car before you got in here, and you're in here singing the song, yes, I will sing for joy, and you realize we just had an argument, stop singing, go outside, and resolve the problem. He would ra- God would rather you stop worshiping him and get right with your brother, your sister, with the person around you. If you are sitting there filling out your tithe check and suddenly you realize that Sue is angry at you at your workplace, you need to finish the check, put it in. I'm just kidding. No, you need to <laughs> stop where you are and go deal with the problem. God would rather have you resolve that issue than give money to a church than stand and worship him. In the ancient world, when you brought your gift, it was because you were proclaiming, I have sinned. God, I want to be reconciled to you. When we come and worship God with free hands, it's because we are saying Jesus is our offering. We are right with you, God. And God looks at us and says, okay, so we're good. And you're going to come worship the fact that we're good, but you're going to have a problem with him and not deal with this first? And I think he's warning us, let's not be hypocrites as Christians. Let's be those who are ready to reconcile. Let's do that first. In fact, the next he tells us to do it quickly. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you paid the last penny. What he's saying here is that imagine this is your last chance. Your accuser is about to go tell a judge who's going to throw you in jail and you're going to be in debtor's prison the rest of your life. You've never paid off the last penny. So as if this is your last chance, go as fast as you can to deal with the issue that's between you and the other person. Do not let it fester. Do not let it stay. It will turn into bitterness. It will turn into resentment. It will grow into insults and beyond there. Hey, if this matters for your accuser, how much more does this matter for your family member? For your mom, for your dad, for your husband, for your wife, for your children? for one another in the church. How much more should we then be off to go deal with this to handle it as quickly as possible? We need to put others first and be unfair to ourselves to deal with each other in mercy, not in anger. We need to go step back, ask why we're mad, and deal with the actual problem. By the way, many marriages don't actually deal with the real problem. Did you know that? Many marriages forgive each other for how they fought in anger, not for solving the situation. They go, I'm sorry I called you names. Oh, I'm sorry I called you names too. Oh, I'm sorry I said it that way. Oh, I know I shouldn't say it that way. We'll get it better next time. The problem is still over there in the other room. Just because you made up for how you fought doesn't mean you dealt with the issue. And so we need to deal with our anger, yes, but we need to resolve the problems. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. Do not build your house on the sand of selfishness, especially on the sand of anger. 
His second one that he gets into is just as difficult. And he says this, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Adultery was the worst thing you can do to the marriage bond. It was fully snapping it and breaking it from your lust. But this applies to the married people, not applying, but lust applies to everyone. Amen? This is not, again, just a, a subset of people who committed adultery. Oh, you guys are in trouble. Everybody else, you're okay. No, Jesus is like, let's get to the root of the fruit. The root of that same, of a different fruit might be that root leads to, hey, it may lead to just sleeping around. It may lead to pornography addiction. It may lead to rape. There are all kinds of horrible evils with sexual sin that can occur because of the root of lust. And Jesus is clear. He says, guys, you need to watch it because lust is dangerous. You see, lust devalues human beings. Lust turns people into objects we enjoy in our minds to get pleasure for in ourselves. Whether they're offering themselves to you or not, whether they're offering themselves to you as an object or not, doesn't make it right. Jesus doesn't talk about them. He talks about what's inside your own heart, inside your own head, inside your own, going on behind your own eyes. He's saying, listen, the root of this ultimate fruit is lust. Do not lust, my friends. You need to control your eyes. What's going on with your eyes? And if you're a youngster in the room, you're in junior high, high school, you're, in young, you're a young college person, you're single, I'm talking especially the guys in here because we are designed by God to be visually attracted to women. You, will, you, will, you can fall into habits where you're sitting around in that um, Taco Bell or wherever you find yourself and a girl walks in and you're like, oh, she's cute. Oh, she's cute. Oh, maybe. And then the danger is it shifts later to, hey, maybe I should talk to her. Maybe she's my wife. Oh, maybe I should talk to her. That's what was happening to me. It became so bad that my eyes would jump so much that one day I'm sitting with my wife. We're at a Chipotle. This is early on in the beginning of our marriage. Some woman walks in who's not appropriately dressed, and I'm like, huh? Huh? And my wife looks at me and says, you look at me. Well, we had a very intense conversation later, and that's a super shameful event in my life. That's a good warning. Listen to the dumb pastor, okay? Do not let your eyes get used to bouncing and looking at those around you for the sake of lust. Don't. It's destructive, whether you know it or not, whether it's found in romance novels, ladies, or on chat rooms or the people of your past and Facebook, you need to watch your hearts. You need to deal, guys, with the pornography and the cell phones and all the garbage that's surrounding us because our world is saturated in lust, saturated so much. We're in danger because you know what happens when you feed lust? It grows. That's what lust is, the desire for more and more. I want it, I want it, I want it, and it just wants more and more and more, and it grows. It's like sowing seed in the ground. It may not, you may not see the consequences immediately, but eventually it develops a harvest of dangerous stuff in your life. I had a friend, a very good friend of mine who once used to tell me, he's not a Christian, he would say, hey, you know, we can, we can look at the menu. That was his comment about how to check girls out. They got married and we'd hang out and he'd say, it's okay, just because I ordered doesn't mean I still can't look at the menu. And then one day his wife looked at the menu and reordered. And that's what happens when we let lust run loose in our lives. You're not, you don't know when the consequence is going to come home. And we want to be careful. Jesus says the root of this stuff is lust. Guys, we need to deal with it. 
We need to deal seriously with it. In fact, Jesus tells us the way you do that is to put others first with purity. You say, well, Doug, Greg, how do you do that? Well, his answer is go extreme. Go very extreme. He uses an extreme example to say when you're fighting sin, especially this one, you need to go extreme. He says this, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than the whole of your body going to hell. In order to help you guys this week, we have scissors in the corners of the room. I'm just kidding. Obviously, that's... Jesus is being extreme in his, in his hyperbole because he's saying, listen, in order to fight lust, you have to starve lust. You have to chop it off at the root. You have to kill it. You have to do everything you can to starve it out of your life. That may mean, I like to put it this way, you got to limp on earth in order to leap in heaven. you got to limp on earth or you're going to be sprinting in hell. And Jesus is like, listen, do extreme things. If that means you've got to stop using social media, if that means you've got to shut down your Facebook page, if that means you've got to put a filter on your computer with an accountability software and burn all the pornography that you have and just tear that thing, snap it in half and get a new computer because it's so filthy and disgusting, do it. Fight for your purity. You have to work at this. Otherwise, you are in danger of hellfire. But he's going, oh, Jesus, forgive me. What? No, 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 no. Do not use God's grace as a cloak for your sin. Do not use God's grace for a cloak for your sin. It's an evidence of your lack of faith. What I want to clarify here is that we need as men to be self-controlled by valuing the woman as a human being, not an object of our passion. By getting to know them, understand, not saying actually get to know them, but understand that you need to control your eyes and look away. Ladies, I'm going to flip it on you. Some of you, yes, you need to get rid of the romance novels. You need to stop putting the erotic stuff in your life, and you need to cut off the television shows and, and all the chat rooms and things. Some of you need to get away from it. Others, we need to have a serious conversation about men controlling their eyes and ladies. You need to understand how powerful your beauty is. Your beauty has been given to you by God as a power. It's a strength. Men are built to see it, to capture it, to, to, to be attracted to it and be captivated by it. And guess what? You ladies know that. There is a, a, a my wife talks about, there is a, a fascinating feeling that happens when you know guys are seeing you and are attracted to you. It, it's addictive. It's powerful. And there are women who have taken that and run with it all the way to where they're willing to say, ah, this is me, and you boys just need to deal with it. I'm gorgeous, and I know it. And you know what would happen if a man used his strength in the same way? Do you know what a man's strength is found in? It ain't his beauty. Trust me, we are ugly. We, uh, it's in our muscles. It's in our ability to lift things, to carry things, to break things, and to shape things. That's what a man's good for, right, ladies? Can you carry this for me? Yes, I can. <laughs> How do you pick that up so easily? Because I've got muscles. <laughs> what happens when a man uses his strength in that fashion? It's called abuse. Ladies, the Bible invites you to modesty for the love of your brother. The Bible invites you to modesty to control your strength as a man is to control his. It is on the same terms of power and strength. Your modesty is a beauty and a strength of its own, and it helps your brothers. Men, watch your eyes, control yourselves. That's what it would say. Ladies, be modest. 
In this way, we've got to fight together. We've got to limp on earth. Yeah, you may not be up with the latest fashions. You not, may not be the best Instagram photograph on the planet. You may have no social media presence. Hi, that's me. Do you know why? Because I'd rather limp on earth than leap myself into hell and ruin a church. I know my heart. And we've got to be honest with ourselves. We have to fight lust. And it's no wonder then that Jesus would step into the next thing because he's saying don't build your life on the sand of selfishness of lust at the same time because it can affect marriages intensely. He goes on by telling us that we need to put others first by being faithful in our marriages. Beginning in verse 31, he says, it was also said whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, Jesus says, that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, Jesus deals with this because this is an interpretation of the law. He says the interpretation of the law is to claim that all I got to do is a certificate of divorce and I can get married to whoever else I want to now. And Jesus is like, hold on, time out. That's not what God gave that in there. He'll later say it's because of the hardness of heart. He said, because you've become so hard, you don't want to change anymore. You don't want to shape yourself. You're so angry. You're so bitter. You're so whatever. You don't want to shift. And what these guys were doing is they were taking the law and they were using it as a cover for this kind of logic. I'm angry at you. She's hot. I want a divorce. That was the logic. And it's still the logic of many people today. I don't want to deal with this. It's irreconcilable. No, that's not what Jesus said to do about your anger. I think she's hot. She's prettier than you, blah, blah. Or he's, he talks to me better, whatever. You got lust going. Hey, time out. Boom. There's another reason marriages go away. The third one is really because we've been dishonest with each other about what's going on. Whether it's about your finances, about what you desire, about who you are. There's all kinds of issues. No wonder Jesus nails these three things down around the circle of divorce. Marriage was often a picture of the unity between God and his church. And so when it comes to Christians, we're supposed to represent that in our marriages. And so he says, hey, look, the only way out of a marriage, in this term at least, this time, is he's saying, is through sexual immorality, somebody who's committed actual adultery. He says, otherwise, you know, don't use it as a cloak because you're just causing adultery. Now, Jesus also gives, or Paul will later give also the out for the abandonment by a non-believer. And so there's sexual immorality, abandonment. We could argue, and some theologians argue, that abuse is, is one of those because it destroys the marriage bond and for the safety of the woman. There's these aspects here that are involved in this conversation about marriage. It is a very intense situation because it's a calling to Christians to live faithfully to one another. Because guess what? When you wake up one morning after you've been married, you look over to the person that you were dating and you go, who the heck is this person? You ever done that one? Because you marry a stranger in many ways. And that stranger, guess what? Is a sinner. Oh my gosh. We only show our best side when we're dating. All the mess comes out after you're married. And then one day, you're three years in, and you're going, oh, I can't stand this guy. He's messy. He's sloppy. He's ugly now because he let himself go. You know, whatever it is. There's this mess that we run into, 
my wife and I like to call it the foothills when we do premarital counseling because there's a point in your journey, in your marriage, that you're one day going to have to face the fact that you're not going to get what you want out of your marriage. Many of us got married to be happy. That's not the point of getting married. God intended marriage so we would be holy, and holy happiness comes out of holiness. He intended that person to be in your life to shape you and change you. And one day when you wake up and you're going, I'm not getting anything out of this. This is ridiculous. You have to make a choice one day. You have to choose to put that person before you. You have to live selfless. And if you will cross the foothills and enter into selfless living for your spouse, and then you two together can be selfless for your children, you will end up with a harmony that will help you through the battles and the dishonesties and the messes to live out grace. But too often, too many of us, we're not ready to resolve things quickly. I get some of you guys, I get it. You're stuffers. You're like, I don't want to do real, I don't want, I'm the stuffer in my family. I don't want to resolve things quickly. I need about 30 minutes, you know, I need to get away and think because my wife is far more logical and far more intelligent than I am. And she owns me in every argument we ever get into, right? So I have to get away and be like, I can't think through this. Get away and come back. But we always resolve the issue. Whether you're a slow process or a fast process, you've got to fight for your marriage. You've got to get out there and not give up on your marriage. Don't allow an excuse to let you get it done. No, keep going. Fight for your marriage. Put your family first and your spouse first. Don't believe, oh, the kids will be okay. It's a lie. I was a youth pastor, and every youth pastor I know will tell you, divorce is awful for kids. Awful. But my kids say they're fine. Of course, they're not going to burden you with what they're going through. You're going through a divorce. They don't want to be a burden on their parents. So they come to us. They ball their heads off. They ask why they're doing this. They don't understand. I knew a guy whose parents divorced when he was in his late 20s. And it wrecked him. Because you know what it is? For every person who knows their parents when they're together, it's like watching your soul split. Because you are the very physical representation of the bond of that marriage. And suddenly, not only is your life split between two homes, your soul is split between, in very real ways, two people. And you wonder, if they can't be unified, there's a torture that can occur. I watched kids never survive, never get out of it. One kid was going to be a pastor sailing forward in Bible studies, his parents divorced, and boom. I don't know, he's been in jail, all kinds of stuff. And I can, we can, all of his friends, we can look back and go, it was, it was that day. It was that event. Divorce is damaging. You need to fight for your marriage. And don't use the, oh, he'll forgive me stuff. Don't use grace as a cloak for your sin. Again, that is a dangerous place to go. Because one day you're going to have to stand before Jesus and Jesus is who, the one is going to be telling you, hey, look, I said I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I went through all this garbage with you. You sinned against me how many times? Let's, let's take out the list. <laughs> I didn't leave you. What's going on here? And unless you have a real reason that he gave you, that's going to be a tough conversation. We have to stand before God. And imagine if we use the, oh, oh, he'll forgive me in the anger department. I'm so mad. I punched that guy now. And, uh, you, know, you know, I'm just going to kill him. God will forgive me. We would never use this kind of language in any other sin, 
in any other situation. I want to challenge you guys. Fight for your marriage. Don't give up. Be as honest as you can. Be as Fight against lust. Let's deal with the problems. Let's go. Get counseling. Get other mentors in and around you. Listen to what they tell you. You're broken. Maybe he's broken or she's broken too. Yeah, welcome to the party of humanity. We're all messed up. Amen? And if we will understand we're messed up and we need to be the best disciple I can be, then I'm going to add to the best part of humanity for my, uh, in this world. And, and that may resolve my marriage and it may move forward, but you're called to follow Jesus. And this is the instruction he gives. You want to build your house on the rock, not the sand. Then we have to know and do it. Now, some of you aren't married, so you're like, this didn't really apply to me. Thanks for the future advice. I hope it works. And, but Jesus is going to apply it in general here. He says, look, we all need to put people first by being truthful. You see, um, an oath was an issue in their time period. Marriage is a type of oath, but in their time period, all oaths were sworn unto the name of the Lord. And if you broke that oath, they were like, well, now you took the name, the Lord of the name, in, or the name of the Lord in vain, and so now you're in trouble. So they said, don't worry about it. Just stop swearing by the name of the Lord. Swear by the temple or Jerusalem or something like that. And if you, and if you manage to not do what you promised, you're okay. And Jesus goes, what? That's not the point. And so he dives in. He says, again, you've heard that it was said to the, those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And don't take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Jesus is like, stop, stop using oaths as a cloak for, for, your, for your falsehoods. Just let your yes be yes, your no be no. Just, just say what you mean and mean what you say. And this is so critical because we live in a world that has propagated so many lies. To be quite honest, it's lies disintegrate relationship. You want to have a disintegrated relationship, start lying. Think about it. Why do we not trust lawyers or politicians? That's an easier one. Why do you not trust that what the salesman is telling you is really true nowadays? Why do you not trust what the advertisers are saying on television? Why do you not trust that you're getting honest media? Why do you not trust that you actually have representatives who are representing you? Why do we not trust the church? Because we think all these people have lied to us. And once we've got enough lies in the system, all authority and all community and all relationships dissolve. Because truth builds trust. And when we don't tell the truth, we don't know. But in a world where nobody knows what truth is anymore, when we don't even know, when it gets to, well, it's my truth, well, how do you even know when that person's lying to themselves or it is true? There's no way to have an ability to trust. And so we suspect everybody. Why do you think the church needs to be the place of truth? That we need to be truthful to each other. And that's not always easy. Trust me. You're going to have to say really hard things to each other to tell the truth. Do it kindly, but be honest about who you are. You see, we lie because, A, I want to look good, so I'm not going to tell you what I really did back here. I'm going to hide it. Or because I want you to think like I think. I mean, how many of us have made up statistics on the spot just to back up our arguments, right? Or because we want people to do what we want them to we want them to do. So I lie to you to manipulate you into what I want. 
Lies are all about distrust. Lies build distrust and they destroy society. They destroy our homes. They destroy these things because they devalue people. They say, you're not worthy of the truth. And when that happens, guys, everything begins to fall apart. And so we're not called to lie. Jesus calls us to say what we mean and mean what we say, to be absolutely truthful. And if you're struggling with that, you need to just, you know, fess up. Come back to the truth. And if it's something that's about lust, you need to fight it and cut it out of your life and face the consequences. If it's about anger, you need to resolve it and deal with it. No matter, many, many of these aren't dealt with because we're afraid to tell the truth. Let's just be honest. A lot of the fights are because we're not willing to tell what we really, truly are honestly feeling, thinking, or where we really stand, or what we really think. We're just like, yeah, whatever you want, and then eventually it just falls apart. I think what Jesus is giving us here is genius in the midst of our relationships. He's saying, don't build the sand on putting yourself first. Put other people first. Be unfair to yourself. Be honest. Fight for your covenants. Don't lust, but treat people as people. And hey, let's give mercy. And if we will do these things, we will see that we have an opportunity to make a difference. Because you know what? The gospel hangs on all these things. If we're not going to be honest, who's going to believe us with the gospel? If we're going to be hypocrites in these other places, who's going to believe us with the gospel? You see, God has not asked us to do anything he wasn't willing to do. In all this series, there's not a single thing that Jesus didn't himself already do. He trusted his father completely for all of his needs to the point that he even gave his life. He was unfair to himself on the cross to bear our sin. And he put us before him to give us life. And that's where I want you to land. If you feel somewhat like overwhelmed by guilt in this sermon... I hope what you do is not leave here angry or beating yourself up, but I want you to hear this. God loves you so much that he is not ready to judge you. Instead, he sent his son Jesus to bear your sin on the cross. And that when you receive him into your life, and if you have, that he has indeed taken that sin on himself. And he has called you to follow him. And he's empowered you to live in these ways. That you don't have to continue in sin. But now you have the chance to live that honorable life that you were hoping because he is doing it through you. But it starts with you receiving him. It starts with you repenting and turning from those things and allowing him to forgive you. It's in that very move that we begin to build our lives on the rock of Christ and not the sands of the world. And some of us, you just need to go deal with God right now. You need to enter back into the grace and mercy that he has for you. Because one day, one day there will be a day of judgment. And I don't want you to stand there on your own terms with God. I want you to stand in Christ there, forgiven and freed from all of our sin. Now, would you bow your heads with me? Christians, you're here today and we're here to follow Jesus. And so in this time, I want to give you this opportunity. Maybe God's been pricking your heart about one of these things that you need to deal with. I would ask you to ask him to give you the power right now to work through that and just to confess it to him and receive again his grace anew as it's always with us. 
But some of you may have not even begun this journey with Jesus yet. You didn't even realize that he was willing to forgive your sin. And God will remove that guilt and he will set you free so that in the day of judgment, they, what God will see is his son's righteousness on you, not your sin. But you need to receive that gift that he asked for you. It's not by you cleaning up and making yourself right and I can earn it. Nope, you can't earn it. And you've never done something so horrible and so evil that he can't forgive you because he loved you that much. He put you before himself at that cross. While they were hanging him, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He has that much grace available for you today. Receive it. And now that's you right now, and you're ready to receive that, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Just begin with this prayer and talk to God. Say, God, I know that I've sinned, and I ask that you would forgive me. I trust that Jesus Christ has taken the punishment of those sins away for me. And that you are giving me grace. Would you please come into my life? I want to put you first so I can put others first. Help me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.